So this is the last lecture of this term. It's on John Fletcher's play, The Woman's Prize, or The Tamer Tamed. Uh, it's a great play, it's really funny, and, and it's a really fun play. I was thinking back over the lectures I've given, and I somehow feel as if it's easier for us to think about tragedy. It's easier for us, I feel as if my lectures on tragedy have been maybe better or better received, uh, as if comedy is quite difficult to explain. But that must be what's wrong with the world, that we prefer tragedies to comedy. So I'm going to really try hard to make uh, the tamer tamed uh, seem as good as it is. So this is a sex war comedy. Uh, it answers Shakespeare's play, The Taming of the Shrew, very explicitly. So I'm going to try and talk about how these two plays interact, to think about um, plays as incomplete or non-autonomous theatrical objects, and to think about how they relate laterally and sort of intragenerationally. And I want to end the lecture with a sort of review of uh, what I think we've done during the series, um, uh, a, a roundup of ways that you might approach early modern drama. Okay, so let's start with the play itself. Uh, Fletcher's play, The Woman's Prize, or The Tamer Tamed, dates from about 1609, 1610. This is a p point where there's a, a really interesting cluster of plays all interested in contemporary gender roles. Um, I put uh, Middleton and Decker's The Roaring Girl in there. Uh, there's a lecture on that play on iTunes already. Um, I'd also put uh, Epicene, which was a Johnson play that I mentioned in uh, talking about The Alchemist. And maybe Nathan Field's play, A Woman is a Weathercock. So these are all plays from the 1609-10 period, so a really interesting sort of snapshot cluster interested in ideas of femininity and particularly in gendered roles within marriage. The Tamer Tame begins at a marriage, so it's an interesting sort of um, anti-comic structure. We expect comedies to end with marriage. This one begins with the marriage. And the person who's getting married, remarried, is the widowed Petruchio. He's marrying an apparently meek wife, Maria. After the wedding, the tables are immediately turned, immediately turned on the bridegroom. Maria and her women friends barricade her bedchamber and negotiate a series of turns. Across a number of scenes, Maria constantly has the upper hand over her husband, and in the end, her triumph is complete. Even his faked death does not fool her. She's obviously been to a fair few plays where she knows people fake their deaths, they're not really dead. From this position, the position of his faked death, she and Petruchio agree to begin a more mutual uh, future relationship. I have tamed ye, concedes Maria, and now am vowed your servant. I have tamed ye and now am vowed your servant. In part, we can see that it's Maria's feistiness that attracts Petruchio. We might see an echo there of uh, Taming of the Shrew. He reveals this in a series of asides at the beginning of Act 4. In part, then, this play understands aggressively witty repartee as a kind of foreplay. It gives it a screwball, quickfire quality, and in that way, uh, it might be one of those plays that we put alongside classic Hollywood comedies like Bringing Up Baby or His Girl Friday, films in which women seem to uh, have the upper hand over uh, slightly hapless or slightly unconvinced uh, men. I'm thinking about the um, uh, the dinosaur um, guy in uh, in Bringing Up Baby. Fletcher then, though, is clearly engaged with Shakespeare's play, The Taming of the Shrew. That's a play which div which dates from around 15, 18 years previously. And interestingly, by the point of The Tamer Tamed. Shakespeare's Shrew is not in print, although there is a version called The Taming of a Shrew in print, which has some kind of relation to Shakespeare's play, but a contested one. In Shakespeare's The Taming of the Shrew, Petruchio marries Catherine, the shrew of the title, and depending how you read the play, he either tames her cruelly or enters into a reciprocal, oddball relationship with her. That rather depends on how you read uh, a long final speech in that play, in Shakespeare's play, where 
Catherine uh, seems to um, outline the wife's duties to her husband in some quite conventional ways. So that's one of the points of um, uh, interpretive um, difference. And depending really on what you take to be the narrative effect of a wider framing device in which the plot of Petruchio and Catherine in Shakespeare's play is set as a kind of inset play put on for the drunken tinker Christopher Sly, who has been tricked into believing he is a lord. Uh, at the end of um, th that play, A Shrew, the Christopher Sly character says, oh, I've seen a great play, now I'm going to go home and tame my wife as well. Uh, and it's hard to know whether that's exactly what a drunken idiot would say, having seen the play. So, you know, a sensible or rational person would not say that, or if that is what we're supposed to think at the end of the play, that it's been about how to tame the wife. So Shakespeare's play ends uh, ambiguously, and I think Fletcher's play doesn't entirely help us with those ambiguities. Perhaps, in fact, it tells us that Shakespeare's play was always ambiguous, and that's quite helpful, because we tend sometimes to think that it is we who are able to see more sophisticated ambiguities in Shakespeare than uh, his contemporaries or in other, in other texts too. On the one hand, Fletcher's play takes Petruchio's behaviour in the earlier play to be cruelly effective that, uh, and suggests that indeed he did bully his first wife, Catherine, into submission. That's the force of Maria's speech, Maria the second wife, which is delivered from her bedchamber. I'll make ye know and fear a wife, Petruchio. There my cause lies. You have been famous for a woman tamer and bear the feared name of brave wife-breaker. A woman now shall take those honours off and tame you. Nay, never look so big, she shall, believe me, and I am she. So on the one hand then, Petruchio's reputation from the previous play is for having cruelly tamed his first wife. That's why Maria says she's going to uh, break him in turn. But on the other hand, Fletcher's play suggests that Petruchio's first marriage has been a deeply traumatic experience for him and that he still bears its scars. Tranio, one of the few characters imported directly from Shakespeare into Fletcher's play, Tranio recalls that the bare remembrance of his first wife will make him start in sleep and very often cry out for cudgels, coal staves, anything hiding his breeches out of fear her ghost should walk and wear them yet. His new wife is not going to be allowed to repeat this humiliation. We're going to come back to the idea of who wears the breeches. Uh, this time, the bridegroom is going to assert his authority right from the start. His male friends observe in the interstices of the wedding party with which the play begins. She, i.e. Maria, she must do nothing of herself not eat, drink, say how do ye, make her ready, piss, unless he bid her. So this time round, uh, Petruchio is going to be fully in charge from the start. But Maria, as we've heard, has different ideas. When Petruchio on his wedding night enters his house expecting his, to find his wife waiting for him in bed, in fact, he's just been having bets with his male friends about his sexual performance, he gets more, or perhaps rather less, than he bargained for. Maria is fortressed in her own room, heavily defended, and with provisions to stand a month-long siege. One of the servants observes, the chamber's nothing but a mere Ostend, referring to the famous siege of the port of Ostend in the early 1600s. In every window, pewter cannons mounted. You'll quickly find with what they are charged, sir. There's a lot of jokes about how um, the sort of phallic equipment we would expect to have in the wedding chamber is actually um, uh, a whole lot of cannons and stuff trying to protect uh, the woman, from, uh, the, the woman from, from her husband. Petruchio shouts up to this fortress, and I'll talk a little bit about how this play makes very interesting use of uh, a position of dominance by Maria, which is high up on stage. Petruchio shouts up to this fortress asking his new unwilling wife why she chose to marry him since she was not coerced or threatened into doing so. Let me in, he cajoles, and experience the delights due to a marriage bed. But Maria is adamant. 
Her refusal to sleep with her husband follows two different sources, one more distant, the other more immediate. The distant one is clearly the ancient Greek comedy Lysistrata, Aristophanes' comedy in which the women of the city withhold sex from their menfolk in order to assert their wills, the so-called sex strike. But the other more immediate source clearly is Shakespeare's play, in which it seems that it is Petruchio who withholds the consummation of marriage until Kate is tamed. His invitation right at the end of the play, famously, Kiss Me Kate, turns into a promise of consummation. By the end of The Tamer Tamed, Maria seems to express that the ideal would be marital mutuality. In some ways we can see this play as part of a broader discourse about so-called companionate marriage, the sense of marriage as a uh, as a partnership not between equals but between reciprocal partners. Uh, lots of the new conduct literature in this period is talking about uh, the obligations both of men uh, and women, uh, the way in which they can understand their, um, the, the reciprocity of the household. So that's, it's not quite equality but it is mutuality or reciprocity. By the faith I have, this is Maria, in mine own noble will, by the faith I have in mine own, nob mine own noble will, that childish woman that lives a prisoner to her husband's pleasure has lost her making and becomes a beast created for his use, not fellowship. So use, not fellowship. I think that's in some ways um, uh, what companionate marriage is talking about, fellowship, companionship, the, the, the idea of companionate uh, what Maria says here is, if that's not the case, the wife is just a beast created for the use of the husband uh, rather than his, uh, his, his peer. But Maria's got some interesting remarks too about how, um, it, how encounters with men reduce uh, and compromise women. We are gold in our natures pure, she says, but when we suffer the husband's stamp upon us, then alloys and base ones of you men are mingled with us and make us blush like copper. So Fletcher's play is a kind of response to the Taming of the Shrew, which inverts its sexual politics in order to expose them. One of its functions, then, is to supplement Shakespeare's play and in doing so to supply the counterexample, which was a standard structural trope of medieval gender satire. So in Boccaccio's Decameron, in Chaucer's Canterbury Tales, for instance, jokes about or stories which, which depend on a stereotype of women are balanced or capped uh, by stories in which there's a stereotype of men or in which male behaviour is being satirised. Uh, and, and there's a kind of sense in which those two, two stories are, are partner stories. They operate in a kind of balance. But Fletcher's play may also suggest something about the early modern reception of Shakespeare's. For Fletcher, it seems that in some way the Taming of the Shrew is incomplete. It gives an inadequate analysis and representation of relations between the sexes. It needs to be rewritten for the next generation. Perhaps in this sense, Fletcher's play is the first Shakespearean adaptation. Fletcher doesn't just write a play about a woman who, who uses every possible means to bring her husband into line. So that's how the uh, Boccaccio or Chaucer examples might work. It's not that you have the same characters in, in two related stories, but you have one set of characters where the story is about uh, uh, extreme forms of uh, women's behaviour and the other a different set of characters where you've got male behaviour being characterised. What we've got here is a play by Fletcher about Shakespeare's characters, which answers his plot, maybe a kind of fan fiction. But, but Fletcher even picks up Shakespeare's imagery and realigns it, pervasive metaphors about falconry used by Petruchio to suggest how a bird of prey is tamed um, and, and therefore how a woman is. These are picked up by Maria who uses them as an image of the unnaturalness of trying to confine the female spirit. The indefatigable Maria in Fletcher's play drums up a large amount of support from other women. 
uh, one of Petruchio's friends observes ruefully, such a regiment of rutters never defied men braver. Such a regiment of rutters, which is a great phrase. Regiment of rutters never defied men braver. Instead of Shakespeare's isolated protagonist, Catherine Manola, alone in Padua, as her father chooses to marry her off against her will, Maria has a posse of women for support, both moral and physical. Fletcher's is a play completely dominated, quantitatively and qualitatively, by women. Its Act Two, Scene Five is unusual in the early modern theatre in requiring five speaking parts for women, plus a further three on stage. And again, that use of the upper stage puts major female characters in a spatial position of power. They're commanding uh, the stage uh, environment by being higher up than the men. That scene, Act 2, Scene 5, uh, in the Tale of Tend, will be a good scene to compare with the christening scene with the gossips in Middleton's Chaste Maid that we discussed earlier in the term, another scene where women uh, are, are absolutely dominant. Throughout, Fletcher's play is fascinated by the behaviour appropriate to women, and it deftly enjoys and makes great dramatic capital out of transgressive femininity. That struggle over who wears the breeches, a metonym for male authority, is a running joke in the play. The women uh, in Tamer Tamed dance with their coats tucked up to their bare breeches and sing, for the good of the commonweal, the women shall wear the breeches. And we've already had the nightmarish memory of Petruchio's first wife having him hiding his breeches out of fear her ghost should walk and wear them yet. Of course, this is a joke which plays quite differently in an all-male theatre, where costume and gesture are the only available signifiers of femininity. If the women in the play wore breeches, they would be, as they really are, men. I don't think Fletcher quite endorses Maria's actions, much as he makes dramatic capital out of them. And the question of whether Fletcher's play endorses or satirises women's aspirations and whether it offers radical roles for women or trades on old stereotypes is moot. Reading uh, one of the uh, papers that sets out the women's demands, Petruchio's response, as I expected, liberty and clothes, as I expected, liberty and clothes, the best laugh in a one-joke play, obviously not in a one-joke lecture, as the theatre critic Michael Billington put it, of Greg Doran's RSC production. That's a kind of that's a, um, a, a, a remark which neutralises what Maria is doing in resisting Petruchio into a readily available narrative of women's trivial consumerism. Uh, the idea that, that all women want to do is go off and buy shoes is, of course, uh, still with us, I guess. New coaches, hangings, jewels for her private use, French lessons. These are all girly must-haves that are part of the women's demands from the uh, embattled chamber. The fought for liberty here seems to be merely the freedom to go shopping. We've talked before about how women are figured as both subject and object of newly capitalist markets in the contemporary London economy. In city comedy, they buy, but more importantly, are bought. The lecture on the shoemaker's holiday touches quite a lot on that point. But Maria has some loftier ambitions too. She wants to commission epic wall decorations of the civil wars of France. And she has a philosophy to back up her actions, as we've already seen, articulating the idea of equal marriage as the union of equal persons. Marriage should take two small drops of water equal weighed. Two small drops of water equal weighed. The women also use their advantage to negotiate uh, a marriage for another woman, Livia, to her preferred suitor, Roland, rather than to the elderly Pantaloon Moroso. So they've got a broader uh, narrative of female agency, not just the Maria Petruchio plot. What's interesting about this transgressive conduct is it forces male characters into differently gendered behaviour too. Act 4 opens with Petruchio uh, ruefully surveying the damage to the house and its furnishings during the skirmish. The men become the housekeepers 
the people who are concerned about domestic order and the conventionally female sphere of the home. The women are associated with housebreaking and militarism rather than with housekeeping. Ultimately, though, as we've seen, Petruchio tricks Maria back, pretending that he is dead, driven into the grave by the shrewish behaviour of his wife and her fatal refusal to allow him conjugal rights. He's brought on stage in a coffin, and his miraculous resurrection uh, is what's needed to bring about their reconciliation. The idea that Petruchio has died metaphorically and come back to life is what they need to start their marriage on a new footing. You might think that there are other Shakespearean echoes there, perhaps uh, the end of Much Ado About Nothing. But we've seen more recently um, that the idea of resurrection bringing about comic marriage, Chase made in Cheapside, you remember, Touchwood Junior and Mole, both pretended to be dead and were brought on stage in their coffins. Uh, and that, just as we've seen the woman's prize, uh, the tamer tamed, opening with a wedding, we can see it kind of closes with a funeral. Um, both of those um, uh, conventional rituals are disrupted in some way. So the idea of comedy as a resurrection or an anti-death plays in Tamer Tamed and in Chase Made um, uh, alongside an alternative tragic ending that's rehabilitated into comic reconciliation. So Maria, at the end of the play, commits herself anew to her marriage. I have done my worst and have my end. Forgive me. From this hour, make me what you please. I have tamed ye and now am vowed your servant. So Fletcher's play draws extensively on the popular cultural trope of the shrew, a disobedient woman defying male authority, most particularly through speech. That's the, probably the main characteristic of the shrew that they talk. The noise at London Bridge is nothing near her, replies Sophocles to Petruchio's wary question. She doth not talk, I hope. Um, she doth not talk, I hope, and one of the things Maria certainly does do in this play is talk. In the modern theatre, Fletcher's play has found a small place as a kind of feminist riposte to Shakespeare, maybe the justification or the fig leaf for a more clearly normative or even misogynistic shrew. We'll talk a little bit about what, the extent to which it's a, it stands alone as a play or has been entirely subsumed by this uh, partner with Shakespeare. Now, it's true that Fletcher's play is quite different in tone from Shakespeare's, although it may be uh, excessive to see it in terms of modern feminism. It's also true that Maria's change of heart on accepting Petruchio as her husband at the end of Fletcher's play is not really all surrender. She does not apologise for her behaviour, she doesn't retract any of her forthright comments on men and on marriage. And perhaps more importantly, many of her women troops remain unmarried at the play's end, something that's impossible for female characters in Shakespeare. At the end of The Taming of the Shrew, marriage asserts itself as the dominant institution. There is no real alternative for women. That might remind you of something we talked about last week in the relationship between Ford's Tispetitious or Whore and its Shakespearean source, Romeo and Juliet. We saw there that marriage as an institution was reinforced at the end of Shakespeare's play, but hollowed out by the, the plot and the ending of Ford's. Fletcher's play, again, is different in its sense <coughs> of marriage and of comic structure. Often, romantic comedy shows the friendship of female characters severed by rivalry or jealousy. That's sometimes one of the things romantic comedy seems to need to do is to break up same-sex relationships, same-sex friendships, in order to bring about um, partnerships, heterosexual partnerships. But instead of that cliché, Fletcher depicts here a powerful sorority. His character, Bianca, is described in the text of 1679 as cousin and commander-in-chief to Maria and Livia. The two of them are described as two masculine daughters of Petronius. And Bianca remains aloof from the usual comedic impulses towards marital pairing. Dubbed Colonel Bianca, 
She encourages her female cousins with a mythic view of Amazonian independence, telling Livia, go home and tell the merry Greeks that sent you, Ilium shall burn, and I, as did Aeneas, will on my back, spite of the Myrmidons, carry this warlike lady, and through seas unknown and unbelieved, seek out a land where, like a race of noble Amazons, we'll root ourselves and to our endless glory live and despise base men. So it's a great, it's a great idea, uh, full of classical allusions, um, taking up the role of Aeneas, you know, uh, occupying uh, a heroic uh, military uh, Virgilian story, and moving to this um, uh, idea of an Amazonian kingdom, a kingdom of, of women. I think if we heard that speech in a play, we would probably expect that what would happen would be uh, that Bianca would be punished for it in some way later on. She would, it would be shown to be an impossibility and a kind of uppish um, uh, kind of separatism uh, at the same time. But in fact, Bianca remains resolutely outside the circle of married couples at the end of Fletcher's play, and she's never, uh, she's never forced to retract this ideal. For women in The Tamer Tamed, there is, as there was not in Shakespeare's The Taming of the Shrew, an alternative to marriage, an alternative ending for a comedy. Finally, though, I guess Fletcher's play it ends with a plea for a middle way. An epilogue to The Tamer Tamed, probably written for a revival in 1633, makes clear that the play's ultimate message is for due equality between the sexes. The Tamer's Tamed, but so as nor the men can find one just cause to complain of. When they fitly do consider in their lives, they should not reign as tyrants or their wives. Nor can the women from this precedent insult or triumph, it being aptly meant to teach both sexes due equality, and as they stand bound, to love mutually. If this effect arising from a cause well laid and grounded may deserve applause, we'll something more than hope. Our honest ends will keep the men and women too our friends. So in part, of course, this is addressing um, a more generally mixed gendered uh, audience. Um, and that's probably quite different from the audience for a play in the 1590s when uh, play audiences are almost entirely male. At the end of uh, Fletcher's play, it seems an attempt to settle uh, the question of gender, gender behaviour, which has been only imperfectly essayed by the Taming of the Shrew, a suggestion that the two plays together give us that uh, golden mean of marital mutuality. So Fletcher's play suggests that at least one contemporary understood the legacy of Shakespeare's play as the endorsement of men's power over their wives and felt that this was not the final word on the relative roles of men and women within marriage. What's useful, I think, about that is it helps us to see Shakespeare less as the aesthetic endpoint or the summation and more as a writer operating within a dialectical theatrical culture in this period. Fletcher's play allows us to see what Shakespeare doesn't do what Shakespeare can't think of, or what Shakespeare can't include. Gender politics move on over this period. Shakespeare starts to look out of step with the sharp, witty social comedies of the 17th century, that cluster of plays I talked about at the beginning. That's, that has a kind of view uh, and, in, and an interrogation of marital roles that's completely beyond uh, what Shakespeare does in romantic comedies. More broadly, though, we can see plays in dialogue across the category of author. Playwrights drew on other dramatists. Audiences watched plays by a range of writers and already had them as their horizon of expectation. Both play production, then, and play reception involved implicit and explicit dialogues between and across different texts. If Kate's memory haunts Petruchio, then, the sexual politics of a play performed almost two decades previously, The Taming of the Shrew, haunts Fletcher's play. Perhaps we can do more with this parallel about how 
the play deals with its own past. The struggle with the past that shapes Maria and Petruchio's rocky marriage in Fletcher's play perhaps might serve us as a figure for, a metaphor for, the struggle that Fletcher has with his predecessor. The arm wrestle that really animates this play then is less the tussle between wife and husband than that implicitly between older and younger playwright. Now, we've tended to understand this engagement from the point of view of a longer literary history, a narrative in which Shakespeare distinctly triumphs and in which Fletcher is hardly a rival at all. Shakespeare has a longevity and a cultural capital that quite clearly Fletcher doesn't. Fletcher's The Tamer Tamed, if it's anything, is a footnote to Shakespeare's Taming of the Shrew. If it's performed, it's performed in parallel, and the RSC may give us a good model for that. The Taming of the Shrew, performed in 2003, directed by Greg Doran, was in the main theatre, The Tamer Tamed, uh, in the same season, with the same cast and the same set, was performed in The Swan. They knew that nobody was going to go to the Fletcher and everybody would want to go to the Shakespeare. We can see that the play has been domesticated to be subservient to Shakespeare's dominance. Almost, almost all modern editions and references to it, as I have in this lecture, call it by its Shakespearean subtitle, The Tamer Tamed, and not the title it was known by, I think, in the 17th century, The Woman's Prize. But if we were to look at the role of Fletcher's play at the beginning of the second decade of the 17th century, we might want to see it rather differently. Not exactly a supplement, but something more like a successor. Maybe the announcement of the emergence of a powerful dramatic rival, uh, a piece of theatrical aggression signalled by the comprehensive reworking of an old play from the predecessor's back catalogue. John Fletcher was about 15 years younger than Shakespeare, one of a new generation, including Thomas Middleton, who were beginning by 1609-10 to eclipse a writer who had been working in the theatre for two decades. Fletcher is particularly associated with the introduction into English and the development of the fashionably Italianate form of tragicomedy. These offer a sophisticated, ironic, and slightly arch or knowing drama. At around the time of the writing of The Tamer Tamed, it's hard to be absolutely precise about the date, it seems that Fletcher and his then writing partner, Francis Beaumont, were engaged by the King's Men, Shakespeare's company, to write plays particularly for their indoor theatre, Blackfriars. We've talked before about how the indoor theatres, Blackfriars uh, and others like The Phoenix, uh, that I was talking about in relation to Tis Pity last week. We talked about how the indoor theatres attracted a, a different and more elite clientele and how they required a different dramaturgy based around the intense proximity of the audience and these uh, dramatic interior lighting effects that were possible in the smaller indoor theatres. These are not dramatic techniques that we particularly associate with Shakespeare. And some of the recently unfolding work about how Shakespeare's extant plays may show signs of revision by later writers suggests that one of the reasons Shakespeare might have been rewritten was to make the plays work in the indoor space of Blackfriars. Within a year or so of The Tamer Tamed, Fletcher would collaborate with Shakespeare on three plays, Cardenio, not now extant, Two Noble Kinsmen, and All is True, or Henry VIII. By 1613, Shakespeare had retired and Fletcher had taken his place as the chief in-house dramatist for the King's Men. So I'm trying to see this as a moment of struggle or a moment of transition. Fletcher's theatrical takeover after this point is rapid and almost complete. In the years immediately following Shakespeare's retirement, Fletcher almost completely overwrites Shakespeare's legacy. Plays by Fletcher alone or in collaboration with other writers, begin to dominate the King's Men's repertoire. And here I'm drawing on Andrew Gurr's book, The Shakespeare Company, which is great on what the repertoire, so far as we know, in any one season was of the King's Men. So plays by Fletcher dominate 
not only new drama, but also the old plays that the King's Men choose to revive, particularly in this favoured setting of the Christmas season at court, a long Christmas season at James's court. At the court season of 1612-13, which ran from uh, December to the spring, the King's Men presented a repertoire of 18 plays. Okay, so this is the situation more or less at the point when Shakespeare is withdrawing from the London theatre. So it presented 18 plays at court in 1612-13. to 13. Seven of them were by Shakespeare, plus Cardenio, so seven and a half. Four were by Beaumont and Fletcher. There were uh, one each by Turner, Johnson, a couple of other people, and, and, and a lot of plays we don't know who they were by. So that's in 1612-13. Seven out of 18 plays uh, are by Shakespeare. Ten years later, the court season included only one Shakespeare play, Twelfth Night. In 1630, they played 20 plays at court. Only one Shakespeare play was included. 15 of the plays were by Beaumont and Fletcher. So Shakespeare is being um, eclipsed. We could do a much more nuanced kind of study of that, but I'm just taking out those highlights. So in 1612-13, seven out of 18 plays are by Shakespeare. Ten years later, 1622, only one Shakespeare play. 1630, again, only one Shakespeare play. And ten, Beaumont and Fletcher. So Shakespeare is being eclipsed as the King's Men embrace a new dramatic aesthetic. The evidence that we have of revivals in the professional theatre during the 17th century suggests that Shakespeare's works were looking old-fashioned and they were dropping out of the repertoire. Theatre, like popular entertainment now, was a young man's game. By the 1610s, so just at the point Fletcher brings out the Tamer Tamed, the King's Men had moved away from the Shakespeare plays so strongly associated with their outdoor theatre, The Globe, and were moving towards a more sophisticated Blackfriars black, black clientele who wanted different kinds of entertainment. We certainly have a crossover bit where plays are performed both at the Globe and in Blackfriars. That's certainly a transitional moment. But I think we're, um, the argument I want to make is that uh, Blackfriars is, is starting to trump the Globe. Uh, Blackfriars-only plays are becoming uh, fashionable. And uh, as a result of that, Shakespeare looks more and more old-fashioned. By the 1610s then, Andrew Gurr tells us, the King's men were beginning to be characterised as the company supplying Beaumont and Fletcher's plays to the gentry. So the King's men become associated with Beaumont and Fletcher. Fletcherian tragicomedy then is part of a more extensive upward mobility of theatre itself during the later Jacobean period and beyond. Theatre goes indoors, it gets more expensive, it goes up market. Uh, and as we've sort of hinted at before, it probably never recovers from that. The closure of the Globe for 12 months after a fire in 1613 caused, um, sort of somehow metaphorically overdeterminedly, by cannon fire during the performance of the Shakespeare Fletcher collaboration, Henry VIII, may have exacerbated the reorientation of the company towards Blackfriars. Okay, so the Globe gets closed because of uh, a fire at a Shakespeare Fletcher. Uh, collaboration that the Shakespeare, the Shakespeare Fletcher collaboration is the end of the globe, really. And during that period, all their plays have to be at Blackfriars, and there's a shift which never quite returns back to the outdoor theatre, even when it reopens. And we know that the Tamer Tame continues to have a long performance life in the 1630s and after the Civil War. Fletcher seems to the 17th century a sharper, smarter, more contemporary playwright than does Shakespeare. Fletcher does not need as much rewriting to get up on its feet uh, in the 1660s, as Shakespeare does. We've got much more extensive performance records for the Tamer Tame during the 17th century than we do for the Taming of the Shrew. So seen in this light, the Tamer Tame seems a kind of calling card or a dramatic CV, an aggressively witty rewriting of a Shakespearean play intended as a sign that the dramatic order is changing. We might want to turn briefly to the famous theory, most famous theory, I think, of how writers engage with their literary forebears, Harold Bloom's book, The Anxiety of Influence, to think a little bit more about this. Bloom's Freudian analysis of poetic interaction across the generations is preoccupied with the lineage of what he calls strong poets. Bloom doesn't acknowledge Fletcher 
or indeed any other dramatist working in the immediate aftermath of Shakespeare's career. Um, but as I've said before, uh, a theory which isn't about Shakespeare or isn't about Renaissance drama can actually be one of the most useful things to bring to this field. I think Bloom can give us an interesting angle and, and vocabulary on the idea that the tamer tamed uses its antagonistic marital relations as a metaphor for poetic relations. The real struggle the play captures is that between the tamer tamed and the taming of the shrew, or between Fletcher and Shakespeare. Bloom offers a number of what he calls revisionary ratios, revisionary ratios, to identify the relation between poet and predecessor. A couple of them I want to pick out as being particularly useful for us now, but I recommend the book more widely, um, as particularly the introduction as a model for other texts and relationships. The first he calls klinemen, klinemen, misprision. It's a word taken from Lucretius' idea of the swerve. It is the idea of the swerve, of moving away from. And he suggests, it, with that term, Klinemann, that the later poet swerves away from the narrative of the predecessor. That's how he occupies the territory newly for himself. So we might see the tame attained as a kind of Klinemann of the shrew in the way that it swerves away from compulsory marriage, for instance. The second of Bloom's models is tessera. Tessera. Tessera means completion and antithesis. The later poet, he says, completes or contradicts the former's work. In this tessera model, Fletcher completes Shakespeare by providing the shrew's concluding antithesis to produce a kind of equilibrium. So both Klinemann, the swerve, and Tessera, completion and antithesis, offer us fre Bloomian frameworks in which to see the tamer tamed's relation to its predecessor. But perhaps more interesting than these narrative ideas is a more familial metaphor. We're trying to get a way of seeing the play's own agonistic models of family life as a version of their interrelationship in a kind of poetic extended family. Bloom's model of influence is, of course, deeply Oedipal. His concern is, quote, the battle between strong equals, father and son as mighty opposites, Laius and Oedipus at the crossroads. Only this is my subject here, though some of the fathers are composite figures. So the battle between strong equals, the <coughs> father and the son. Literary history is, in, is, is an ineluctably patrilinear enterprise in Bloom's model. Influence and poetic authority is fought over between generations of father and son. It's clearly an unhelpfully gendered model for all kinds of interactions, but particularly here for considering the poetic relationship between two plays that are so variously and acutely alert to the limiting shapes of gendered orthodoxy for both men and women. Um, uh, patriarchal gender roles, the tamer tamed, uh, suggests are a limit on both men and women. So maybe the model of poetic influence and inheritance uh, might be more, that might be more useful here is to use a marriage metaphor, marriage rather than the filial metaphor. Petruchio's two wives, one Shakespearean, one Fletcherian, stand in place of a wider debate about plays, audience, taste, and authorial control. The Tamer Tamed makes a case for, for Fletcher's more elite dramaturgy with its sly attention to women as new consumers. Maria, the second wife, has to educate the leftover Elizabethan character Petruchio into new ways before he can enter the private theatre of her bedchamber just as Elizabethan drama needs a makeover before it can be reaccommodated for the discerning audience of Blackfriars. Fletcher's Shakespeare is more appropriate to the audience of 1610, so much so that Fletcher will shape Shakespeare's output up until his retirement from this point on, either through influence or through collaboration. It's another version of the kind of nostalgia we discussed last week in relation to the sources for Tis Pity, but this time it's more clearly related to the politics of dramatic succession. In The Tamer Tamed, 
Fletcher makes an, an unarguable case to displace Shakespeare from the field by showing Shakespeare's conceptual and dramatic limitations. If this is how the metaphor might work in the play, then Maria's offer of peace terms and mutuality to Petruchio at the end is an act of generosity from a position of unassailable power. The dramatic impetus in The Tamer Tamed is with Fletcher. Shakespeare disappears in theatre's rearview mirror. So thinking about gender struggle in the play as a model for the struggle for dramatic authority at the time of transition within the King's Men, its theatres and its audiences, gives us a different way to think about the way uh, this play might um, encapsulate the moment of its own being. It also helps us to touch on one important recent trend in criticism of the early modern theatre, the work to identify theatre companies rather than individual authors as the most significant conveyors of meaning, the most significant category of organisation in drama. As I've said, I wanted to end this final lecture with a review of some of the approaches and tips that, met, that have emerged from our reading of individual plays. So let's go through them. Uh, in clickbait fashion, I think there are ten of them. The first one is try to always think about plays as drama. I think at its most basic, this means that the meaning of a play is not stable and it's not inherent in the printed text. Rather, meaning is activated and transformed in motion, in the embodiment of parts by actors, in the space of the stage, in the interaction with the audience, in the political and social moment of the performance. I think thinking about the theatre company, the theatre building, the requirements of staging, things like doubling, how, how parts are connected through being played by the same actor. These are all vital to thinking about how plays communicate. We discussed this in this series, particularly in relation to The Alchemist uh, and to Tis Pity. But the second point is that the performance life of most of these plays is not absolutely confined to the early modern period. My suggestion would be to look at reviews to get a sense why plays are being revived and why they are occasionally performed in the modern theatre. Reviews are the place to find this because they haven't been incorporated into editions or much scholarly work. You might remember when we talked about The Witch of Edmonton, reviewers were disappointed not to see more of the eponymous witch, uh, a star vehicle for Eileen Atkins in the RSC revival in 2014. But in a way that insight uh, seemed, I think that insight helped us to argue that the witch is actually not the centre of this play, it's a sort of diversionary tactic, and that the centre of the play was a more clearly social ill um, epitomised by uh, Sir Arthur's impregnation of his servant, remember, and Frank's uh, enforced bigamous marriage. So it became a domestic tragedy in which the witch was a bit of a sideline. I think the reviews helped uh, to make that clear, even though they weren't making that point as a kind of critical structural point. So there are two points about, about performance. The third point is about print. Do try and have a look at the plays in their early print form uh, using Ebo, early English books online. Do they have elements for readers, addresses to the reader, other kinds of paratext? Remember the alchemist's acrostic poem, uh, reading the alchemist down uh, the left-hand margin. That poem of praise to Tis Pity She's a Whore we looked at last week, with its absence of judgment, really, about the kind of moral status of the protagonists. Do we get things like a character list? I've talked a little bit about uh, a later character list for um, Tamer Tame today, and if so, how? What about the title page? Does that pick out elements of the plot or its early performance history that's useful? We've talked about that in relation to Chase Maid. Four, try and think about how plays are structured. In Chase Made in Cheapside, which is a really difficult play to get a hold of in lots of ways, quite a difficult play to read, we had a shortcut to finding the central scene, which was just looking right at the middle of the play. I was trying to argue that maybe one structural form 
in early modern drama is a point at which the middle is the most important. Not the end, which a lot of our generic work tells us to focus on, and not the beginning, which a lot of narrative theory is interested in, but actually a kind of midpoint. Um, that central scene, the birthing room, became the play's focal point, um, highly relevant to ideas of comedy and fertility more generally. So I think it's worth looking quite mechanically for the centre point of a play and see what you find. The fifth point is about criticism. Try to work with recent criticism, particularly from journals. Be worried if your critical material is over-concerned with questions of morality. Remember that many of the issues that we're interested in about these plays, spectacle, gender, sexuality, economics, these are issues in more general critical and social flux. You wouldn't expect, say, the feminism of the 1980s to be all that relevant now. That's slightly Jermaine Greer's problem. We wouldn't therefore expect it to be in criticism either. Related to that, six, try to think about criticism which isn't necessarily about early modern drama. We looked at pop culture views of nostalgia and cultural recycling last week in Tis Pity, for example, the trope of the countdown in Dr. Faustus right at the beginning of term, or more general ideas on comedy from Northrop Fry for Chase Maid. Thinking anachronistically can be a good antidote here in Oxford to an overly historical syllabus. Seven. On the other hand, try not to be too broad brush with your history. If you're going to be historical, be very specific. Twenty years in this period, it's easy to look back and foreshorten uh, the kind of historical differences uh, that we ought to be more attentive to. Twenty years is a generation. The gap between Dr. Faustus and the Duchess of Malfi, say, is like the gap between now and the period of John Major, train spotting and the Downing Street Declaration, uh, which declared a truce with the IRA. These seem a long, long time ago. We wouldn't use these as contextual points of reference for our cultural work now. I don't think we should do it in the early modern period either. If plays are topical, they're probably likely to be quite recently topical. Eight, don't forget the playfulness of plays. Ben Johnson published his works as works, um, and lots of contemporary wits agreed that, yeah, they really were hard work. Remember that these are entertainment. People paid to go and see them, and they wanted to be there for some reason, trying to recover what was fun, what was entertaining, uh, and what people got from them is a good reminder of the pleasures of theatre. Nine. Actually, I think that's enough advice. Thanks for coming this term, uh, and... Good luck with your work on this paper. Thank you.